Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Anybody excited about some chastening this morning? Hey, do we have anybody with us for the first time today? Would you wave your hand around, let us see who you are? There's a couple right there. Were you at the concert last night? Nope? Okay, well, good to have you with us. Anybody else? Uh, who was there? Not too many of you guys were, but how many, how many of you were at the concert last night? It wasn't our concert, but we did host it over there in the, in the parking lot, Triumphant Quartet. Wow. Listen, uh, I've always liked gospel music. It's not really my bag. It's not what I turn to. It's not what I gravitate to. I mean, I'm talking southern gospel. Uh, these guys were phenomenal. I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was tremendous. They were so sharp. That, I mean, everything about it was so professional, but the songs, they really were uh, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying songs and a great atmosphere, great crowd. Uh, we got another band that's going to come here, another quartet that's going to come here in October. Uh, I encourage you to go to it. Again, even if it's not your bag. I was uh, telling somebody last night when I was in high school, Jeff Canfield called me one night and said, Scott, you've got, I'm going to come pick you up, and we've got to listen to this album together, this, this album I found in Mom and Dad's house, and it was the Mills Brothers. Anybody remember the Mills Brothers? And uh, it was Mills Brothers' greatest hits, and we wore that cassette out. We, he took it from the album, he made a tape out of it, and we wore that thing out. We sang Mills. I could sing you 10 Mills Brothers songs right now and get every word right. Those things just, it just grabbed me, and, you know, this was, and my... You know, my grandpa's making fun of me. You were born, you know, two generations too late. That's uh, some old stuff. Uh, so just because it's not your bag, right, you don't think it is, check, check it out. I mean, even if you think, ah, like gospel quartet music harmonies, check it out. I really think you, you might hear something you like. Anyway, I got nothing to gain from that. Again, that's not our concert. That's theirs. But it's a, it was a fun time to get together. Other thing I want to mention before I get into the word this morning is uh, Matt Kreider, where you at? Right, there he is. Uh, youth group is welcoming the new seventh graders this Wednesday, right? I sent out an email. If you've got uh, a child in seventh grade this year, let Matt Kreider know if you haven't already uh, communicated with him. If you haven't already answered that email, maybe you didn't get the email, but let, let Matt know about that today before you leave. So he has those names. And uh, with that, I think we're ready to start this pleasant sermon about the chastening of the Lord. And good morning, everyone. Good morning, Living Word Family Church. Uh, good morning to those of you who are watching at home. Sure would like to see you here someday soon. We've got the place clean and sanitized and safe, and Living Word is a COVID-free zone, isn't it? We are the healed of God. This is a safe place. We're doing what we can to uh, prefer one another, honor one another, but this isn't going to last forever. Meanwhile, we've got space to uh, distance and don't get too used to not coming to church. I'm talking to you, watching at home. Uh, hope to see you next week. Meanwhile, we have been working our way through the book of Hebrews in a series called Stay the Course. And I want to uh, point out, I mentioned this when we did it, but we, you know, we skipped over kind of quickly. Uh, we didn't even read it. We skipped over what many have considered uh, for years to be perhaps the most important part of Hebrews, or certainly one of the mo most important parts of Hebrews, which was the hall of faith. These great men and women of, uh, of the Bible 
who by faith did this, by faith did that, and we sort of referred to it, but then we didn't focus on it. I'm not going to do that. I just mentioned that to remind you that this, this series, even though it has gone several messages longer than I originally thought it would, is not a verse-by-verse study of Hebrews. It is a look at the major theme of Hebrews, which is staying the course. It is a long letter warning against the dangers of backsliding, of abandoning the faith. And so when he brings up these heroes of the faith, he did that, uh, even though it is, it is a fun series to do. Today we're going to look at this one. We're going to take these heroes one by one or, one or sometimes two or three at a time uh, so we can look at what qualified them to be held up as heroes in this book. Uh, but Paul or whoever includes them in this letter as a, as a reminder to these Hebrews, to, to these Jewish converts that hey, yeah, I know you're going through some tough times, and these tough times right now are causing you to consider going back to Judaism. But you are not the first ones in history. You are not the first people of God in history to endure hard times. Here is a great example. Here is a list of great examples of people who suffered hardships but fulfilled the will of God, and guess what? You can too. And... Uh, as we have been, as we've seen all along, the key to staying the course is keeping our eyes on Jesus. How many times have you heard this? Someone asks you, uh, are you religious? And you say, no, I'm not religious. I'm a Christian. Because, what do we say? Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. And that's true, isn't it? Isn't it? Why are you a Christian? Because you know Jesus. You are in right relationship with God the Father because of Jesus. And uh, the, again, these, these uh, early Jewish converts were losing sight of that. They were remembering the safe, somewhat respectable, and certainly comforting rituals that they grew up with and comparing those things only to the suffering and the difficulty they were experiencing in that moment. And... Uh, Therefore, they were being, you know, they're being persecuted for the faith. This was, what, this was the specific difficulty. And uh, the exhortation in Hebrews, which begins this crescendo in chapter 11 and then reaches its peak in chapter 12, is this keep your eyes on Jesus, not on the ordinances, not even on the benefits and not on the persecution. Keep your eyes on Christ himself because that's what this is about. You consider Jesus because you remember that it was his love for you. He was considering you when he was on the cross, right? He wasn't focusing on the cross. He was focusing on you, focusing on me for the joy that was set before him. Likewise, when we're going through difficulties, keep your eyes on him. Not the difficulties, not the ordinances, not the responsibilities, not even the doctrine, although obviously doctrine is important, but it's even the doctrine itself is about the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we keep our attention. It's where we keep our eyes. So now, as we move toward the end of this letter, we're going to pick it up in chapter 12, and again, we are going to encounter a difficult passage, but first we're going to encounter an unpleasant passage. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, we'll read this. Uh, and I somehow hit a button and deleted half that. 
passage there's the danger of electronics. Beth, have you got a hard copy of the Bible there anywhere? Praise the Lord. This is uh, this large print, baby. I'm not saying that to much. I just mean I'm surprised I can read it without my glasses. But that's because my strength is not diminished and my eye is not dim, right? Praise the Lord. Thank goodness that's not large print. I was just reading a title page. But so. Are those reading glasses? Well, then no. I can do this. Let's see. What I say? Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, right? Uh, you know, I could do that. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All right. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, we have three words here. Chasten, rebuke, and scourge. Which is why <laughs> I love how this is presented. Look, we've endured all these things. These are chastening, rebuking, and scourging. These are all three unpleasant things to experience. Right? And it is especially unpleasant to think about God chastening me, rebuking me, or scourging me. Which is why, again... There's something important about the way this is, is presented. He starts with this, look, we've all endured these things. It's not like, oops, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to experience chastening. You've been chastened. Some of you have been rebuked. Some of us have been spanked or scourged. There's the physical punishment, right? Uh, but we got, we've already experienced these things from our parents, from our fathers, our earthly fathers. And we've endured it, we put up with it, and we even respected them for it. And they could only do what seemed right to them. But God, God really does know what's best for us. 
So his chastening is always just, it's always correct, it's always correctly delivered, and it is always, always, always for our profit. It says so right there, doesn't it? If we will yield to it. Chastening is discipline. It is not punishment. It is instruction. Chastening is specifically correction. And the reason it's unpleasant is because it starts, if it's correction, it starts with pointing out, hey, here's something wrong. You are wrong about this. Here is the right thing to do. Now receive my instruction. Um, rebuke is a sterner form of chastening, either because the mistake or sin is more grievous or because we have failed to correct the behavior that got us chastened in the first place. Now, here's a rebuke. Uh, many companies, uh, I worked for Walmart company all those years, especially at the warehouse over in Seymour, Indiana, the, the uh, distribution center. They had, they had levels of what they called coaching. You know, if you did this wrong, you violated a safety issue, you were late too many times. I heard these things. I never experienced it because I was a perfect employee. But they did have a, a coaching structure. This many coachings and then this happened. This many coachings and this happened. Ranger school, uh, and I'm sure many other military schools had a thing where uh, you, you, could, you had your pluses and your minuses. You did something good, you got a plus. If you did something really good, you got a major plus. If you did something bad, you got a minus. If you did something really bad, you got a major minus. And three major minuses meant you got kicked out or recycled. So we, these, we're not unaccustomed to these, uh, this sort of hierarchy of, uh, of rebuke and chastening. Scourging is closer to punishment in the classic sense because it's, it, you know, it's the most severe of the three. Uh, and it's really scary to think about that, being spanked by God. But uh, remember, in all three of these things, the goal is to produce correct and profitable behavior. And the goal is to train, to bring about this positive change. And you know, th talk about something that's broken. The prison system in this country, uh, it, it needs fix, it needs reform. But you know what it's called, right? Corrections. Supposed to be, that's supposed to be what it's about. Correction. Unfortunately, when we read this passage, we tend to focus on scourging. Oh no, what does that mean? Oh no. God is love. And he's going to spank me, he's going to scourge me. How does he do that? What does it look like? What form does that take? And we immediately assume that that's what's waiting for us, a beating every time we make a bad move. And sadly, that's exactly how many people picture God, is he's just waiting there with the belt cocked, waiting for us to step out of line so that he can let us have it. Just waiting for us to mess up so he can whip us. That's not the picture we are supposed to have of God. Look again at that passage. It mentions scourging once. And after that, it says chastening, chasten, chastening, corrected, chastened, chastening. So what's it look like God's MO is here? The gentlest form of correction. That's how he desires to deal with us. That's how he does it as a matter of practice. Does that mean rebukes never happen? No. Does it mean scourgings never happen? No. It just says that what we're looking at as a pattern is chastening. 
And if we will humble ourselves, obviously, to God's correction, to his discipline, to his training, then we won't have to endure the rebukes. We won't have to endure the scourging. But in order to answer the question, think about the prodigal son again. I think we talked about him not too long ago, right? And the son says to the father, uh, Remember, I want my inheritance now. Jesus is, uh, this is a parable, it's a story. But Jesus is telling it to make some specific points. Uh, but I want you to imagine if this happened in real life. And the father might pull the son aside. I mean, if I'm telling this parable for today, I'm going to add some details. I'm just telling you, uh, since it's a story in the first place, I'm okay adding these details. I just want you to, I want you to see it point maybe a different one from what Jesus was making or in addition to the one Jesus was making it's not in contradiction to it so the, the son says father I know I've got this big inheritance coming but uh, you're healthy and I don't know uh, how long I'm going to have to wait for it and I'd kind of like to have it now and so the father pulls him aside and chastens him he says son I love you and I want you to have that inheritance when you're ready for it when I'm gone this is a bad decision. You have all you need right here. And that inheritance is to make sure you have all you need later on. But the son says, no, dad, I'll be fine. And after all, in a sense, it really is my money anyway. And I want it while I can enjoy it. I want it while I can get some good out of it. So the father goes to get the money together. And then the brother comes out. And the brother rebukes him and says, you fool. Don't you see how hurtful you are being to dad? You're basically saying you'd rather he died right now so you could have that money. Why can't you just stay here, help us run the place? You're not just making a mistake, brother. You are sinning. Now that's a rebuke. But nothing changes his mind, so off he goes. And as we read in the parable, he spends himself into bankruptcy. Now the father could have sent some agents to follow him and continue to funnel resources into this son's life to keep him from going bankrupt, take care of him. But leaving him out there to suffer the consequences of his bad decision is the scourging. The scourging that was necessary to what? Bring about the correct behavior, which was what? Come home. It was unpleasant for the son it was unpleasant for the father to see what his son was going through. But that was the scourging. He could have avoided it. He could have just continued, oh, well, I wish he was back, but I sure don't want to see him starve. I sure don't want to see him slopping the hogs. I would rather send him a little money, help him keep his head above water. But no, he scourges the ones he loves, the ones he receives. And sometimes the scourging is necessary to bring us back to the father who receives us. Now imagine this, taking it even further. Imagine the son running out of money and having the audacity to return home, saying, hey, Dad, I need a little help. I ran out of money. And uh, I need it kind of quick because I want to get back to the city as fast as I can. 
So then the father says, oh, I got excited when I saw you heading this way. I thought maybe you were moving back. And the son goes, no, no, no. I, I really do love you, Dad, and I appreciate you. But I've got my own life to live. I just need you to help me out a little bit. Now, what do you say to a request like that? Son, I love you. And you are welcome to return here anytime. But you're making a bad move, and I will not finance your bad choices. Does that make sense? That's the scourge. But that's the extreme case. And we keep seeing these extreme cases in Hebrews. Uh, and while he's dealing with the gravity of these possibilities, it's a consistently optimistic book. You remember we read a scary passage? Man, if you stop on the grace of God, stop on the blood of Christ, if you, if you draw back, if you turn away and you abandon the faith, you can't go back. But you know what? You're not going to do that. We are not among those who draw back. We are convinced of better things for you. This is the tone of the book, isn't it? So yeah, he's acknowledging these possibilities. He's, he's acknowledging the scourging, but he's saying, you know what? It, you're going to be chastened. And chastening is a good thing. God loves you and he corrects you and it's for your profit. And we'll return to this uh, in a minute, but I want you to read uh, another passage here. This is the difficult one, or at least part of it is, and we'll pick this up in uh, verse 12. Therefore, we're still in chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." This is difficult because of that last sentence. Now, you remember Esau, Jacob and Esau. And Esau comes in hungry, sells his birthright to his brother for a bowl of stew. And uh, we read about him and we think, yeah, yeah, that's a bad move, man. You were not thinking ahead. You were thinking only about the moment. But we have come to know God as this loving, forgiving, merciful, gracious God, the God of another chance, and another chance, and another chance. Can anybody besides me say amen to that? The father who runs to greet the son as he's returning. And here we read that Esau seeks repentance with tears and is rejected. Well, it looks like to me he wanted to repent but couldn't. God wouldn't allow him to repent. He was rejected by God. And we think of these other scary passages. And then fear and doubt creep in again. Uh-oh, have I gone too far? Has my son gone too far? Has my daughter gone too far? Has my friend gone too far? I know they're not in a good place. What if they wanted to repent and couldn't? Isn't that a scary picture? And there are paintings, there are pictures that depict just that. People crying out to God and God resisting them rejecting them. And this is a great example of the necessity of taking in the whole counsel of Scripture. 
when we read the Bible, when we read all of the Bible, what is the overwhelming impression we get when it comes to God's attitude toward anyone who wants to be saved, who wants to repent? It's mercy. It's grace. It's love. It's acceptance, right? I mean, for goodness sake, Jesus is the one who told the prodigal son parable, and that's precisely the point he's making. So when we encounter a verse that seems to turn a good portion of Scripture on its head, it's a good idea to pause, to pray, and allow for the possibility that we might be reading it wrong. So let me suggest uh, two other ways of reading that last part that don't violate the sanctity of the word itself. It goes like this, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, though he sought it diligently with tears for he found no place for repentance. Another way, and this is a little more subtle, you say, oh, you know that afterwards he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, parentheses, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What I'm saying is in both those cases, what he was seeking diligently was not repentance, but the blessing. Huge, huge difference there. What's interesting about Esau, I get the impression reading his story that he was a fairly likable guy. He's a wild man. But, you know, it wasn't like he was, uh, you know, Hebrews describes him as profane here. That word uh, really means godless. That's what that word means. He's godless. Have you ever known anybody, I'll bet you, many of you have somebody in your life right now, they are wild they are fun, they're hard workers, they're energetic, they're even friendly, but they're godless. Anybody know anybody like that? Great people to hang out with, and you want to get them saved, you want to share the word with them. This was Esau. He wasn't a thief, he wasn't going around the country stealing and murdering and raping or anything like that. He's just living his own life. And he wanted Isaac's blessing. Why? To finance the kind of life he wanted to live. He wasn't pursuing God at all. He wasn't pursuing his father at all. Just wanted his father's blessing. He was unwilling to submit to Isaac's leadership and Isaac's discipline. He wanted autonomy. And again, what he really wanted was his father's resources to finance his lifestyle. He sought the blessing, but he could not bring himself to repent. He could not bring himself to return to the Father. Alexander McLaren writes this. The awful pictures that, we have, that have been drawn of men weeping because they could not repent and of men with passionate tears imploring from the Father in heaven the blessing which does not come to them are slanders upon God and misapprehensions of his gospel. That gospel proclaims that wheresoever and whosoever will ask shall receive, or rather that God has already given, and that nothing but obstinate determination not to possess prevents any man from being enriched with the fullness of God's salvation. Follows it up with this. Only remember, dear brethren, it is possible for a man to wish vagrantly with half his will 
to wish in a languid fashion, to wish while he is not prepared to surrender what stands in the way of his wish being gratified. Hear that? To wish while not being willing to surrender what stands in the way of his wish being gratified. And such wishing as that never got salvation and never will. That is a powerful statement. I woke up the other day with this phrase on my mind, and I don't know, sometimes uh, I'm dozing on the couch while Beth has got her uh, phone playing some sermon or another, and I might have heard this, uh, or I might have dreamed it. It might have been something that God just dropped in me. I honestly don't know. I just woke up, and it was, and it was simply this. Jesus, I'm inviting you into my life but I'm not sure I'm ready to step into yours. You see, one of the glorious truths about the new birth is that he lives in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's marvelous, isn't it? We get excited about asking Jesus into our hearts, but often, and sometimes it's just bad teaching, we get the idea that it's... uh, when we do that, it's simply God empowering us to succeed at whatever we want to do. But the other great truth about the new birth is that we are in Christ. It's Christ in us. It's us in Christ. And if we're in Christ, this is his life, not mine not yours. And if I'm unwilling to recognize that, if I'm unwilling to embrace that, then have I really repented? Father, I want your blessing. I want your blessings. I need your provision. I need your healing power. I need your protection. I need what only you can give me. I need salvation. I don't want to go to hell. But I also need to live my own life. Can't you see that? And God says, I love you too, son. But I'm not going to finance your bad choices. I'm not going to bless you to live the life you want to live. I'm going to bless you to live the life that I've called you to live. And shame on us. We hear that and we think, oh man, what a drag. And God's like, you're silly. Don't you understand that the life I have for you is better than any life you could ever design for yourself? You got to trust me. Look, my door is always open if you desire to return to me. Listen to this. This is God saying this. My door is always open, son. You can always come back, but this will always be my house. It's your house, too but only in the sense that a child tells another friend, that's my house. Why is it it a kid's house? Because he lives there. Whose house is it really? It's dad's house. It's mom's house. Right? So God says, you can come back anytime. This is your house because you can live here anytime, but it's my house. And if it's my house, it's my rules. Already starting to have that talk. Can't wait till I'm 18. Can do whatever I want. Never, he hasn't really said that. But he's thought it. And I used to think it. And I had that talk too. I was chasing. 
Son, legally, there's a lot you can do when you turn 18. But if you're in my house, there's still rules. There's still curfew, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Stand up. Where are you at this morning? Right there. <laughs> Where are you on this, uh, maybe this scale? How much of yourself do you believe you've turned over to God? I'm not questioning your salvation. And I'm not necessarily, I'm certainly not trying to stir up doubt. But I want to know, when you repented, when you came to God, did you just say, come into my life and save me? Did you receive his blessings, his power, and then you've just continued on with your desires? Or have you ever genuinely sought him and said, thanks for saving me. I'm yours now. What do you want? You can't earn your salvation. I like, I like that. I've referred to it before, that old imperial song. It won't even up the score. It's just the least I can do. I just want to know what I can do for you. It's a great approach to serving God. What must I do for salvation? Nope, nope, nope. I'm saved. Now what can I do? What can I do for you, God? Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's your life now. It's a good life. And I appreciate anybody who's honest enough to say, I recognize the truth of that. And to be honest, that's why I'm not a Christian yet. It's not because I don't believe. I'm just not ready for that kind of commitment. I respect that. It sounds a lot less foolish than the person who says, ah, I don't really believe that stuff. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but that's what the Bible says. The fool has said in his heart there's no God. But the person who says, I know there's a God. I know the gospel is true and makes sense. I'm just not ready for it yet. I appreciate it, but that's a different kind of foolish. That's the foolishness that's foolish because you don't know how long you have left. Oh, you're trying to scare me. Yeah, I am trying to scare you now. It's a big, scary world. It, nothing breaks my heart more than just scrolling through my news feed and seeing example after example of people dying young in stupid ways. Not just stupid ways, but tragic ways. This is just, it's wasteful, meaningless, but it was sudden. Is unexpected. I understand. God has promised to satisfy me with long life. And I speak that over myself. I claim that. But in another sense, none of us are promised tomorrow. So where are you this morning? Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Have you invited him into your life? And have you stepped into his life? Have you done that? If you haven't, will you today? Will you today? Does anybody want to make that decision today? Say, you know what? Yep, I fooled around long enough. Today's my day, Scott. I need Jesus. I need him to run my life now. And the good news is there's a big, big pile of blessings that comes with him. Because it's in him. We get life. He's the source of life, and we, and we are in him. We are in life. Anybody want to be 
Make that decision today. All right? That means almost everybody in here is saved. Praise the Lord. I'm glad to hear it. I want to, uh, I'm going to pray a prayer here. And uh, I want to, I just feel like I need to say this. If you need to make a decision for him and you just didn't want to raise your hand, talk to me before you leave. Stop by my office, grab me in the hall. We can talk privately or whatever. But don't leave here without making that decision. Uh, and as I pray this, if you just desire to, you know what, I, I, I don't doubt my salvation, but you are right. And what, what, has, what, has, what has pierced me today is the need to not just be saved, but to embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Then you pray this along, uh, along with me. And you pray it in your heart. Give it the amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It, uh, thank you for the, for the correction, the discipline, the training, the chastening. Thank you, Lord, even for the rebukes. Thank you for the scourging, Lord, when we look back and see that some of these difficult times that we endured are the very things that drove us back to you. And there's no better place to be than in your house. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us and qualifies us to be in your house, to be in your presence. And Father, we are determined to, to remember today and not forget that the life you give us is your life. It's not ours. So help us to live the life that you have called us to. Not just to use your blessings to live the life that we want to live. Help us to always, always, always remember that you love us even more than we love us. And that you've always got something good in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for a second. Uh, right before we dismiss, I want to remind you that we'll, and, and many of you, Make your contribution on the way in. Make, give your offering on the way in. Uh, but this is what we'll do on the way out. There are baskets out there. If you need uh, an envelope, raise your hand. Ushers will get you one if you're giving cash. Uh, checks can be made out to Living Word Family Church or LWFC. And uh, thank you again for your faithfulness with the tithes and the offerings. And uh, what a... What a this is one of these things. God is always for us. He's always taking care of us. He's always making a way. And while I can open up the paper or open up my browser and see, you know, the, the bad news about the economy, just like the bad news about everything else these days. And it's like, wow, God's still good. God's making a way for Living Word Family Church right in the middle of this. It's almost like God can make a way where there is no way. You know, sometimes we limit, well, God must do it this way because these are the ways that exist. God makes new ways, doesn't he? He's, uh, he's a good God. We just don't need to worry if we really trust him. And when it comes to this moment of the service, when we're talking about the offering, how do we demonstrate that trust? By obeying him. And what's, what are we obeying? Bring the tithe into the storehouse. Don't withhold the tithe. And don't, listen, if you want to talk about, well, that's law, fine, uh, then don't tithe. But if, you, if you're not going to obey the tithe, that means you've got to give more. Because when Jesus compared the Old Testament law to the New Testament truth, he always raised the bar. So why don't, if, if you don't want to tithe, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor or give it to the church. We're not poor. 
So anyway, God's, God's blessed us. This isn't a lean on you. We don't do that here. You know that if you've been here any length of time. Please, we gotta, if you don't give, if you don't get big this morning, brothers and sisters, we're going to have to shut the lights off. We're going to have to close the doors. We can't do it. That's never been living word, has it? Praise God, we're a blessed church, huh? Never will be. Uh, why, so why am I making a deal out of this? Because this is for you. This is how, this is the avenue that God has provided for your blessing. You sow a seed, he brings you the harvest, but you have to sow the seed. Amen. Praise the Lord. Are you ready to give this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for every individual that's here. Thank you for your presence in this place. And thank you now, as always, for the privilege of giving into the work of your kingdom. We are so grateful to you, God, for your goodness, how you have poured out your provision in our lives. And we are honored to honor you in our tithes and our offerings. And we believe uh, that as we give gladly, as we give cheerfully, that we also give expectantly, that we do have your promise. And so we expect the windows of heaven to be open and the blessing poured out that there's not room enough to contain. We believe that as we give, it'll be given back to us good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It'll be given to us through the hands of men, Father, so that we can give again. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give. Please remain in your seats until the ushers dismiss you from the rear, right? And we'll see you out there. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.